Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have uh, left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Uh, be sure to put them in my Q&A videos, by the way, because I don't necessarily go looking through all my other videos for questions on uh, for you guys uh, to answer uh, for you guys. So anyway, hey, everybody. Uh, I thought we might do a little, uh, I don't know, I wanted to have a little bit of fun with the show a little bit. Um, so I'm going to be a little less, I don't know, whatever. I just got really super formal for a little bit this week in doing a presentation with uh, Dr. Stephen Kent and Phil Lord. Uh, Phil is a legal scholar and uh, professor. And Stephen Kent, of course, is a, a sociologist out of the University of Alberta and has been famous for years as a very staunch anti-cult, anti-Scientology sort of uh, academic. He has published many, many papers uh, about Scientology, Nexium, comparisons between the two, for example, uh, Scientology's RPF, Scientology's C organization, a lot of stuff he has delved into from an academic perspective. And he's been one of the good guys in the fight uh, of the so-called cult wars that have been raging in academia since the 1970s and 80s, actually. This has been an area of contention. If you've not heard any of my content on this, there's a there's a bunch of it you guys can check out where I get into uh, lambasting certain academics who act like apologists for Scientology and other destructive cults. And they have various reasons for it, some good, some not so good, but uh, all of them at the end of the day, uh, wrong. <laughs> and and so, um, so I got a chance uh, this week there is an International Cultic Studies Association, ICSA. Um, uh, this week, we, we recorded a presentation that's going to be happening for the annual get-together of ICSA this year. They're doing a virtual conference, and I don't know that it's ever going to be publicly available. I'm not sure about that. If it is, I will get you guys a link. For now, I have to hold on to it. And it's just for this presentation. So we worked together on a video about the RPF. And uh, I got to talk for about 15 minutes about it, uh, kind of from an academic position as a, you know, somebody who's now knows something about the psychology of coercive control and stuff. And I tried to apply that and some of my research findings into the talk. So like I said, hopefully at some point I'll be able to show that to you guys. And if I can, uh, I definitely will. So watch for that in the not too distant future if it's possible. Otherwise, this week has been, uh, you guys don't see, but we are surrounded by boxes everywhere. We are moving this weekend. In fact, as you are watching this, we are moving. <laughs> so this is the last show here uh, of the critical Q&As in this studio space, in this, in this room. Uh, we will be moving across town, and uh, and we'll see how we set up over there. So, good times, and hopefully this move will be the last move in quite some time. We expected to be here a little bit longer than we were, but, you know, uh, when they want to raise the rent on you a couple hundred bucks at one shot, you just go, yeah, no, I don't think I can do that. And apparently that's happening all across the United States right now. Uh, pretty crazy inflationary period we're in, and uh, rental costs and housing costs and all that is... Uh, boy, you know, people just really like to, uh, well, there's all kinds of reasons for what's going on. You know, it's there's opportunism and, and people taking advantage, but there's also other stuff too, I know. Anyway, uh, so here we are. Thanks for listening to my whole little intro here. There is no podcast this week. I uh, had to skip it because of the moving and the time taken with that and the ICSA presentation. That's where my time ended up going this week, and so there is no Sensibly Speaking podcast, but I do hope you guys will check out the Critical Conversation show we did this week. All right, now let's finally get on with your questions. Oscar Q. Zilch, at what point, if ever, do Scientologists hear Hubbard talking about implant stations on Venus and Mars? I have never been clear as to when Scientologists hear the lectures in which Hubbard describes almost being hit by a freight train on Venus which for some reason strikes me as even more ridiculous than the Xenu story. All right, Oscar, thank you for this. And uh, we have a couple of questions like this, a little bit of uh, getting into the Scientology minutia of their, in, you know, pretty weird ideas and beliefs about how the cosmology and mythology of the universe 
is put together. Hubbard dropped basically breadcrumbs and tidbits here and there and various lectures over the years, starting all the way back in really, I think, about 1951, 52 is when he really started delving into space opera, past life kind of stuff. Certainly by 1952, in terms of the, the, the time track of Scientology, uh, they were well into this idea that there was off-planet space battles and interstellar conflict and that past lives were a thing that had existed, not just people living here on this planet in a previous incarnation, but other civilizations, other places in the universe. And I mean, logically speaking, if you think about it from a mathematics perspective, it makes complete sense that if we were immortal spiritual beings who had were living life after life after life, using biological organisms as temporary housing or shelter for interaction with the material universe, because spiritually we, we don't directly interact with this universe. I mean, it makes it for, within the logic frame of, of the Scientology belief set, it, it kind of makes sense. Where things go completely off the rails, of course, is in the details and all the details that Hubbard tries to throw out to give people an idea of what this whole cosmology is all about are completely batshit stupid nuts. I mean, anti-science, anti-everything that we know about the universe and how it's put together. Uh, for example, he you know goes on and on at length uh, in various lectures about how Einstein is dead wrong. The speed of light is not a universal speed limit. And, and that interstellar travel has relied on faster than light travel forever. And that that's just some nonsensical you know piece of hokum from Einstein and that, that, that he was wrong. And, uh, and so if you sort of accept that Hubbard can just disregard and throw Einstein's work out the window, and that means all of general relativity, which means pretty much half of physics and everything that's being worked on right now to find a sort of universal uh, you know, theory of everything, if you just take half of that and throw it all out the bin because L. Ron Hubbard said that, well, that's just not true, right? Then uh, then you can start imagining all kinds of realities that could be because now you believe, because L. Ron Hubbard simply said so, that faster than light travel is possible and has been accomplished and is used every day out and about in the big wide universe. So uh, this is how Scientologists, this is sort of the standard of belief or level of evidence that Scientologists have for these kind of claims is Hubbard said it, he recalled it, he knows about it, so it must be true, so therefore Einstein's wrong. And if you don't understand Einstein and you don't understand physics or, or, or quantum mechanics or, or everything with relativity rather really with what Einstein was talking about, then, you know, if you don't get any of that or you don't really delve into trying to understand it, and it is hard and convoluted stuff to understand, then um, it's pretty easy to just go, oh, yeah, no, that, none of that stuff makes sense. And those are just theories anyway, right? I mean, it's just a theory. You know, people just don't understand these things and they don't really understand how science works at that at these levels. And so they they take what Hubbard has to say. And remember also that uh, that people believing this nonsensical stuff that Hubbard peddles have an emotional investment in in believing it. They they really need to believe it. They need Hubbard to be right. So that is one reason why they will eschew science or things they don't really understand or think about. They just go, ah, nah, that, that's probably not true. I think L. Ron Hubbard has it figured out because look at all the things he did and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Now, as far as the first time you're going to hear about any of this stuff in Scientology, it could actually be on day one or it could be on day 100 or it could be, you know, three years in. It really depends on the individual's experience with Scientology. They really kind of like to get this data to people and have them accept it. So it's it's a little exciting to Scientologists who are into this cosmology of Scientology. Uh, it, you know, people who get into that stuff, into the past lives and the implant stations and the invader forces, and they want to know about all this stuff. There's a lot of non-confidential references in throughout the materials of Scientology to these fantastical ideas, sci-fi fictional ideas. Um, then there's the confidential stuff, right? Like the Xenu story. And the Xenu story is really just another story, another tall tale that Hubbard wove 
um, you know, that, that he just sort of randomly assigns to a position in space and time. He says 76 million years ago, this whole Xenu genocide um, thing went down and Earth and, and, the, and the 13 planets around here that, have, that constitute this Markabian uh, confederacy or this galactic confederacy. Um, this is uh, this was this horrible thing that happened all these years ago. But that one incident is the only thing that's really nailed down as super confidential because what that reveals is the existence of body thetans. And Hubbard said body thetans is incredibly restimulative. It's incredibly bad for you to know about that or try to do anything about that before you're ready. And because then you'll get a pneumonia and you'll die because it's designed to do that to you. And so this one specific time and place incident, this event, is super confidential in Scientology. That's the whole OT3 thing. But the fact of past lives, intergalactic civilization, space travel, space opera, all that wide open stuff in Scientology talked about all over the place. Where you'll first tend to encounter it is when you do auditor training. Unless some Scientologist goes out of their way to give it to you, you know, oh man, you got to look at this lecture, the role of Earth. Oh man, right? You're going to be blown away. Because in the role of Earth, which is a 1952 lecture, Hubbard makes references to off-world implanting and bodies in pawn, which is something I talked about years ago. It's this idea that you actually have two bodies. And your other body is on some other planet and some other civilization somewhere on the other side of the universe. And they can control that body and therefore control you in this body. This is called a body in pawn. This concept was first uh, given in this role of Earth lecture. And, uh, you know, Scientologists get all wide-eyed over this, you know what I mean? And, and this is not really an official lecture that's on any course or class or even part of any Congress or lecture set. So you kind of have to dig it up. And you're like, ooh, wow, look at this. And, you know, there aren't really any, any uh, CDs of it. You'd have to find an old cassette or something. Uh, so, so some of this stuff is a little hard to find. Some of it's harder than, than other things to dig up. Um, as far as the Venus thing, the freight trains on Venus and how Hubbard talked about this, I looked it up and this is the Venusian trains. This lecture is a briefing course lecture and many of the references to the whole truck stuff, the whole, if you've heard about heaven being described in detail by Hubbard, that comes from a period of time from 1961 to 66, 67, 66. This five-year period in there from 61 to 66, that is the St. Hill Special Briefing Course. That was delivered at St. Hill in England, and that course was for advanced high-level Scientologists. They had not yet delivered OT. They didn't have the whole Xenu story or the OT levels yet, but the highest level, highest trained Scientologists from around the world would go to St. Hill and they would train right under L. Ron Hubbard and they would be there for months or even years and they would do this class which resulted in you know this thing now called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course. Uh, there are a couple hundred, I think about 460 something lectures that constitute the body of that course. One of the lectures, number 317, is called Between Lives Implants. What happens to you between your lives when you die, when your body dies and you before you go get another one, you could be implanted. You could be put through this ringer, this process uh, where you are made to forget your last life, made to forget everything, told what to do, and then fired off into a new body in this hypnotic state. This was Hubbard said this was routine. This was common. This was what what people experience all the time. And he gave this lecture called Between Lives Implants. And in there, he here's the quote. He said, uh, he said, um, quite a thought. Now you look at this, the idiocy of it. Somebody sits up on Venus. There are probably some other stations around up in the system. This one's on Venus. I noticed that we all believe that Venus has a methane atmosphere and is unlivable. I almost got run down by a freight locomotive the other day. Didn't look very uncivilized to me. I'm allergic to freight locomotives. They're always running into you. Now, you know, something like this sounds ridiculous because, of course, it is ridiculous that there are freight trains on Venus and that Hubbard somehow went there and was almost run over by one. It's also, even within a Scientology context, 
impossible for L. Ron Hubbard to have gone to Venus and gotten run over by a freight train because the only way he would have been able to go there was through his spiritual awareness, not through some bodily, you know, physical uh, travel. And so getting run over, you know, it's a joke. It comes off as a joke. It sounds stupid because it is stupid. And yet Hubbard would say stuff like this. These are the kind of breadcrumbs Hubbard drops that I'm talking about. Just a comment, just a, just a little joke, just dropping a little line here or there. And that's what you get. He never goes into any real detail anywhere in any of his lectures about how these implant stations are really structured, why they were there, the whole history of how that works, what that's about, what civilizations have used them, what implanters have used them. He talks about invader forces and he numbers them, one, two, three, four. I think there's about seven or eight of them. He never really defines where they're from, what they're about. He gives vague descriptions about what they might look like or what they might do. He makes reference, for example, in one lecture to how the pyramids in Egypt uh, are uh, spaceports and how there were space battles between implanters or space invader forces right on the other side of the dunes and how in the hieroglyphics uh, you can see the artwork of the Egyptians, how there are laser guns right there in holsters and they're, and they're just obvious, you know, because they really did have laser guns back then in holsters because Egypt was, uh, you know, cozy up with these invader forces. Like, that's it. That's all you get. You don't get the whole, you know, a t even a, a dates, even a timeline, a history, a rundown of it. It's just a few little teaser comments that he gets to throw out and tantalize people with these ideas and stimulate in them their imagination running wild so that when they go into their auditing, they now have an excuse to live as though Star Wars and the Matrix are real and that they've actually lived those experiences before. They get to be the nerdy heroes that they have been watching on the screen. Uh, you know, this kind of thing. And this, and this is where Scientologist imaginations run rampant uh, in their own auditing. And this is how Hubbard gives them permission to make that happen. So it's really maybe all tongue-in-cheek, ha-ha, nudge-nudge, wink-wink, as some people have suggested. But I believe Hubbard did this in order to stimulate people's imaginations and wonderment and awe. Remember, this is all about creating euphoric experiences for the pre-clears in the auditing sessions so that they will pay the more of the money. It's all about that. So the more fantastical stories Hubbard could weave, and remember that back in the 50s, this was before we even went to the moon. This was before spaceflight was a thing. It was all science fiction, all of it. So anything was possible. People didn't know, like they do now, what space travel actually consists of and what, it, what, what's, what astronauts have to go through and what a space environment is actually like. We are way more space literate now than the audiences that Hubbard was, was grifting to. Way more. They, we, he would never get away in any public forum, pretty much anywhere in the world, certainly in the United States or in Western nations. Hubbard would never be able to get away with making some of the bullshit claims that he makes in his lectures to an audience who was really quite ignorant of anything having to do with space and space travel outside of the science fiction that they read or saw on TV. You know, so you're really talking about an audience of uh, a very gullible, ignorant people um, because everybody at that time was pretty gullible and ignorant when it came to space travel, you know, and that's one of the ways that Hubbard was able to get away with this. So, so be gentle when you consider Hubbard's audience back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. These were not, you know, people who really had it together when it comes to understanding the, the, the very subject Hubbard was talking about. Anyway, um, but they sure do, uh, even now, get into wide-eyed wonderment, uh, kind of in the same way that conspiracy theorists get into wide-eyed wonderment. Like, you just can't believe that this is true, and they have a line in on it, and, it, and, it's, and it's so true. And, whoa, you know, people just really go over the top on this stuff. So, there you go. Michael Yoder.
Against my better judgment, I listened to a couple of LRH Phoenix lectures. Besides the fact that none of it made sense at all, he brought up several terms that you may have covered but still aren't clear to me. He talked about persistence and particles and moving through space, as well as isness and not isness or alter isness, and how people change who they are to fit into persistence and isness. Can you give us a brief primer on those terms? Michael, thank you for asking about this. I think I've addressed this before, but let's go ahead and tackle this from a new perspective. Um, Okay, first off, these these ideas. Before we get into the specifics of your question, let me let me back up a little bit a bit and talk about the nature of Scientology's belief set. Okay, the the knowledge of Scientology. Hubbard tried really hard, especially back in the early days in the fifties uh, of of Dianetics and Scientology, to give his subject legitimacy by using the trappings of other sciences or science in general to try to describe Dianetics and Scientology. And from this, he came up with axioms. He said there are going to be axioms of Dianetics and axioms of Scientology, and these are going to be the self-evident truths upon which this subject is built. For example, in geometry, you have a series of axioms on which geometry is built. There are certain assumed fundamental truths to geometry that nobody's really working to try to prove or doesn't have to prove or doesn't, we assume these things are true. And because these things are true, we can build this science of geometry and we can make things and predict things and do things and measure things, you know, scientifically with this uh, subject called geometry because these things that we assume to be true have worked out so far to be true 100% of the time. We have never had issues with them. Um, for example, the smallest, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. That's a pretty, pretty decent way of thinking about what are these dots in space and, and what's this line between them. Well, it's the shortest distance between them. That's what it is. And using that as a, as a, as a sort of a, a, a truth, a self-evident truth, a, yeah, that, that's, that, that works. Um, geometry is built on ideas like that, okay? Um, I mean, I'm kind of simplifying, but I think you guys get the idea of what we're talking about here. You make certain assumptions and you say these things are true, and therefore we can build a framework of belief around this. And to the degree that it actually works in the real world, maybe you hit on something. Maybe you got something, and this is how we put math together and science together, stuff like that. Well, Hubbard decided to copy that framework, and so he came up with his own Scientology axioms. This is right off the Scientology website today. Written by Mr. Hubbard in 1954, I'm quoting, the Scientology axioms are a condensation of all earlier axioms and logics. There's something in Scientology called a logic or logics, and this is basically the same as axioms. These axioms are truths which are proven by all of life and which represent the most succinct distillation of wisdom regarding the nature of the human spirit. Well, philosophically, you can certainly get away with saying things like proven by all of life, but you don't get to get away with that in a scientific sense. All of life does not prove much of anything except that it's life. Uh, you got to dig a little deeper than that. Uh, and so we come to axiom one. Life is basically a static. Life is basically a static. What the hell? Okay, what does that basically mean? Not quite sure. But definition, a life static has no mass, no motion, no wavelength, no location in space or in time. It has the ability to postulate and perceive. That is axiom one of Scientology. Now, what I call that is the first point of faith in Scientology. You have to accept that that is true in order for Scientology to make any sense. Life is basically a static. In other words, you have to accept that there is this thing called life. It is alive. It has awareness. It has intent and will and judgment and, you know, choice and that kind of thing. Uh, but it does not have any mass. It doesn't have any wavelength. It has no motion. It is not located in space or time. It is a nothingness that is a somethingness, 
as we like to say in Scientology. So it is nothing, and yet it is something. And you have to accept that as an article of faith because you can't prove it. There is 0% chance that you will ever prove a nothingness exists. So you just say, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I'll go with that. And then you go on to uh, axiom two. The static is capable of considerations, postulates, and opinions. You'll have to tell me what the difference is between a consideration and an opinion. Uh, but a postulate is a, a self-created truth, is, a, is an idea or a thing that you can put out as a thetan, including the idea that something exists and it will exist. You could postulate a can of Coke and voila, here is a can of Coke. I have postulated that and there it is, right? Now, maybe I also had to get up and go to the fridge and get it. But I first had to postulate that a Coke was going to be here. And by postulating that, I then am able to make that into a reality. And that's basically your idea of a postulate in Scientology. So I'm going over these axioms uh, because uh, from these axioms is where this isness and alterisness and all this crap comes from. Uh, Hubbard gives uh, definitions and ideas for things that are pretty silly, pretty simple, stupid, silly. Like, for example, uh, and John Atack and I have talked about this, Axiom 4, space is a viewpoint of dimension. Space is a viewpoint of dimension. There are a lot of Scientologists and even ex-Scientologists who think that is extremely wise, that is incredibly insightful as a statement. And then there's the rest of us who can see that that's complete horseshit because it doesn't give you anything. Uh, anyway, energy, energy, axiom five. Here, I'm going to start addressing your question, Mike. Energy consists of postulated particles in space. So when Hubbard talks about particles, he's talking about things that move or motion, the idea of motion. And energy, Hubbard also describes elsewhere as motion within motion. It's sort of, there's nothing there except a motion of some kind. And you go, well, what's moving? Well, that's where things get weird. Hubbard never really says. He just says energy consists of postulated particles in space. So you get the idea of particles really minute little things. And here we, we could imagine it, that when Hubbard was writing this in 1952 or 54, that he was imagining quarks or subatomic particles or, you know, quanta particles or something like that. He wasn't. He was just saying this. Energy consists of postulated particles in space. Okay. You know, so again, postulated is the, actually the really important part there because that implies that something is doing the postulating and creating that energy. Sure enough, that's exactly what Hubbard is saying. He is saying that spirits, thetans, are the things that postulate energy, particles in space and time, and therefore they exist. And that's where energy comes from is we create it. Okay. Uh, what those particles are, anyone's guess. Hubbard never said. Um, time is basically a postulate that space and particles will persist. Here we have axiom seven, and this is where we introduce the concept of time. And this is where we're going to get to your isness and, and alter isness questions. Those are coming, right? But first we have to clear up this idea in Scientology that time is the idea that things are persisting. Because when a Thetan creates something, it has no time connected with it. It's, it exists and it doesn't exist. It happens and it's gone. So I, I, I postulate as a, as a happy little Thetan that I want a can of Coke. The can of Coke appears and just as quickly it disappears. It, I don't, I have to additionally postulate that the can of Coke will persist. It will continue to exist. And here's where Hubbard gets weird, because here's where we get into these considerations about existence. Uh, Hubbard says, uh, he, he goes on to say that the apparency of time is the change of position of particles in space. In other words, you perceive time, time it seems to exist because things change their location in space. 
That's how you know that something is changing. Change is the primary manifestation of time, Hubbard says in Axiom 9. So we only know time is happening because there is some kind of change in the particles or positions of those particles in space. And that, and the measure of that change and the rate of that change, Hubbard says, is what time itself is. All depends on the viewpoint of a dimension of the space and the fact that a Thetan is there viewing this and watching this for any of this to exist. All of these definitions are from the viewpoint of a spiritual entity or a Thetan. If you take or remove the Thetan from the equation, none of these definitions make a damn piece of sense. Um, so, but because Hubbard is crystal clear about the fact that all of creation and all of us and everything that exists is simply our consideration and postulate from Hubbard's way of looking at the universe or trying to describe the universe, you can't remove the Thetan from the equation. The Thetan is the basic thing underlying everything. That's, that is, that is, that is the most fundamental principle in all of Scientology. So, at least in terms of when you dive into the philosophy of it. So, Hubbard says in Axiom 11, we finally get to the, the, the feast here. The considerations resulting in conditions of existence are fourfold. There are four conditions of existence. There's four ways that existence can happen. As-isness, alter-isness, isness, and not-isness. Okay, let's let's and there's definite definitions for each. As isness is the first one. As isness is the condition of immediate creation without persistence. Okay, as I just described, I postulate a can of coke, boom, the can of coke appears, but just as quickly it disappears because persistence wasn't part of the creation. The condition of immediate creation without persistence is as isness. I've as isd that Coke. Bop, bop. It was in, it was out. It was here, it was there, and it was gone. Uh, the, is the condition of existence which exists at the moment of creation and the moment of destruction and is different from other considerations in that it does not contain survival. As isness. It's as is. How is it? It's it's as it is, right? Boom, boom. It exists and it doesn't exist. Alterisness is the consideration which introduces change and therefore time and persistence into an as isness to obtain persistency. Now that's that. So let's go over this again. Alterisness is when you have to change the nature of a thing in some specific fashion in order to get it to persist. Because if it's just as it is, when you created it, it disappears. It doesn't persist. It doesn't stay. Why? Who cares? Because Hubbard said so. I mean, literally, that's, that's where we're at with this. But it doesn't. Okay, so he says, you, you, you want something to exist, you've got to alter it, you have to change it. And this relies on this earlier axiom that change is the man, you know, times time is manifested through change. So if you postulate something and it doesn't ever change, then how could it persist? Because it doesn't have any change connected to it. Therefore, it can't change. Therefore, it can't persist. Therefore, there's no time connected to it. I hope, I'm praying all of this is making sense to you guys. I mean, this is this is low level basic Scientology stuff. Um, by low level, I mean fundamental stuff. It's fundament, funda really, really core fundamental Scientology philosophy. But very few Scientologists actually really understand this stuff because it's Hubbard's, as you can see, it's really obtuse stuff. Uh, so you have to ch introduce change in order to make something persist. And by doing so, you have created an alter-isness. So you take an as-isness and you introduce alter-isness and the thing will persist. And what this should tell you, of course, right now, right away, is that everything in the physical universe is persisting, isn't it? To the point that we have a universal law that you cannot erase or get rid of energy at the lowest level. It disperses, it changes forms, but you can't actually get rid of it. 
You can't as is it. You can't make it go away because of the constant alterisness, right? Things are always changing. They're always being altered. And that's what allows the physical universe to continue to persist according to this system of logic. Isness, this is the third one now, isness is an apparency of existence brought about by the continuous alteration of an as-isness. This is called, when agreed upon, reality. <laughs> okay, isness is, you know, so you take an as-isness, you introduce alterisness, and you get an isness. And finally, there is not isness. Not isness is the effort to handle isness by reducing its condition through the use of force. It is an apparency and cannot entirely vanquish an isness. And if that's Greek to you, let me explain. The idea here is that by not ising something, you are trying to forcefully get it away from you, get it out, do away with it, destroy it, take an axe to it, kill it with a hammer. Whatever kind of force you bring to bear, mental or physical, you're trying to make something achieve an as-isness. You're trying to make it disappear, right? You want it gone, but it won't go away because you're just continuing to add force to it. And the only way to actually get rid of a thing and make it disappear forever is to actually engage in as-isness, which means you have to duplicate, as a thetan, you have to duplicate that thing, whether it's a thought, consideration, can of Coke, whatever it is, you have to, you have to duplicate every single part of it perfectly. And by doing so, you create another version of it basically as an as-isness, like it, boom, and the whole thing goes away. It disappears. You made it go away. You, you disappeared it. You as-ised it. And it's the Scientology terminology. And the idea here is that in auditing, this is how this applies in the day-to-day -day of Scientology's life, uh, is that in auditing sessions, it is the, the idea of what you're doing in auditing is you're not just remembering something that happened to you. You are trying to as is the charge connected with that, with that trauma. And you do so by creating a perfect duplicate right now of that memory, of that incident, of the charge connected with that incident. So through the auditing process, you're not just remembering things. As a spirit, you're actually kind of lasering this stuff out of existence. You're as-ising the charge. And that's how Hubbard says it goes away and never comes back. And that's why Scientologists believe that when they go into an auditing session, if all of this has made even halfway sense to you, and I hope it has, then at the end of an auditing session, that euphoria that you experience, Hubbard assigns that to the fact that you have as-ised the charge. You got rid of it. It's gone. It's totally gone. It's never coming back. It's not released. It's not you know temporarily gone away. It's never coming back. It's as though it never happened in terms of that charge. And that's what Hubbard is saying is happening in an auditing session. And that's why Scientologists believe that auditing gains are permanent and that the trauma that they address in their auditing or the problems that they address in their auditing are never, ever, ever going to come back. And of course, this is why I say that Hubbard is making promises he can't keep and why Scientology auditing is doing something or is, they say it's doing something that it's not doing. None of this is true. None of this is really happening. There, there is no spiritual charge and there is no as-ising of it by creating a perfect duplicate of it. That's, this is all complete and utter horseshit. But this is the, these are the philosophical underpinnings of Scientology's belief set. So this is core stuff. This is right down into the, into the, the heart and soul of it. So if you can understand any of this stuff, and it's not really super understandable. So if all of this makes perfect sense to you, I might be a little worried, to be honest with you. <laughs>
<laughs> just a joke. Anyway, guys, uh, there you go. I hope that that suffices as an answer, Mike. Steve Wood. Much has been made over the years of the enormous amount of plagiarism that Hubbard borrowed from other sources whilst inventing both Dynetics and Scientology. Can you speak to the extent of his plagiarism? And from what I gather, it was rampant, but I would appreciate your take on the matter, as I'm sure all Scientologists firmly believe that the entire concept was 100% developed by Hubbard himself. All right, Steve, thank you for this. Um, yeah, there was uh, there's a, a paper that John Atack wrote, which I want to refer you and any other viewers to, called "Possible Origins of Dynetics and Scientology," and that's really the best breakdown I'm aware of of where Hubbard got some of his ideas from, and where some of the concepts and structures and beliefs of Scientology emerge from. The idea with Hubbard was he was trying to use uh, sort of an occult framework, you know, through his experience with Crowley's work and the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and Jack Parsons' experiences there. And Hubbard's already extant belief that he had a guardian spirit and that that guardian spirit was overseen or was part of his existence. You know, we dived pretty deep into this when I talked with a member of the OTO in a podcast, you know, about a year or two ago. So you can check that out. We go deep onto this whole guardian spirit concept, but Hubbard was a firm believer in this, and he wrote about it in his personal writings. And Scientology, and Dianetics and Scientology, were really efforts on his part to utilize a lot of the symbology and the framework of the occult to realize his potential and power through this these spiritual practices and through this uh, sort of spiritual awakening that he was seeking, where he believed he would dominate the, the wills and lives of other men and be uh, endlessly attractive to women and have all of this power accumulate to him and be this raging success that in real life he had never really been able to pull off. That was really Hubbard's sort of vision of where he was going with this stuff, as far as I can tell. But that constantly fought, uh, rubbed up against and pushed up against his um, the, his foot bullets, the way he would constantly cut himself off at the knees and shoot himself in the foot by um, through his laziness, through his lies, through his chicanery, through his cons, and through his straight-up inability to just sit down and do an honest day's work. The man really had a problem with that. So... Um, so that's kind of Hubbard's character and a little bit of a talk about some of what I believe his intentions were coming into the beginning of Dianetics and Scientology. So Hubbard needed ideas that were going to be good covers and camouflage for what he was doing. And he had all kinds of willing participants after writing, after talking about and getting some other people in his inner world, in his inner circle, involved with his uh, formulation of Dianetics as a subject, which was basically just taking hypnotic technique and running people through this hypnosis process to relieve their stress and trauma and pains or conditions. Hubbard believed hypnotism would be a, a route to do that. And sure enough, on a temporary basis, and in some cases, it can be. You can uh, get a um, placebo effect. You can get lots of effects with hypnotism. It's, it's kind of fascinating stuff. But it's also a bit dangerous. And in immoral hands, like Hubbard's, you could have all kinds of shenanigans go on with it, including developing what, you know, a so-called modern science of mental health around a hypnotic technique, and that's what he did. It's in. It's it's just it, it's it's so uh, obvious and and evidentiary. I mean, you can just see it. It's all there. Uh, and again, this uh, ATAC has done a, an already great, you know brilliant job. I don't have to re redo the reinvent the wheel here to point to his uh, paper also on you know Hubbard and hypnotism. And uh, I think it's called "Never Believe a Hypnotist." I believe that is the quote of of Hubbard. Uh, that John titled his paper, where he makes numerous references to where Hubbard directly or indirectly talks about hypnotism and its use in Dianetics. So, um, so, Hubbard, so again, getting to the plagiarism here, the hypnotism part wasn't necessarily plagiarism, but the ideas that Hubbard started accumulating when Dianetics was released 
it was it was a big bestseller. I mean, he he really did not see that coming, and it and it really was a big deal. And he was suddenly giving lectures at his home, and he was traveling, and and people were gathering, and they wanted to hear more about this, and it was this really exciting thing. And so people had their own ideas about what worked and didn't work based on their experience. And they were offering these things to Hubbard. And this is how they ended up going into vitamins and drugs and um, and hypnotics and uh, um, uh, all kinds of stuff was was being loaded in uh, to the Dianetics uh, practice and procedure through the 1950s because people were throwing ideas at Hubbard left, right, and center. And he was sort of taking them in and and putting them into the procedure. But he never, hardly, hardly ever, I should say, would he actually credit those people for those ideas? Sometimes. And there were a few people whose names would recur over the years, but they have been being excised from the lectures uh, as, a, as a sort of effort over, over time, including his eventual wife, Mary Sue. Okay, so... What sort of things was he plagiarizing? Well, you get a lot of psychoanalysis plagiarism, Freudian plagiarism. Even the use of the meter uh, goes back to, to Jung, and the um, use of galvanic skin response is an old, old, old. I mean, it goes back to the 1800s. Hubbard resuscitated that because this guy, um, Volney Matheson, had this idea of, of using this, uh, this um, Wheatstone Bridge, this, uh, this, this uh, skin resistance meter. That was already a party thing. It was, uh, you know, there was already stuff messing around with this back in the 50s. There were all kinds of funny things going on. But Hubbard decided to take that and run with it and um, and use that whole thing as this, as sort of a mental, to, to create his own mental construct of charge and, and bypass charge and trauma and how that works. I mean, Hubbard kind of created this whole sort of, uh, thing out of that, and there were and there were a lot of contributions to that over the years from people, and as well to the exteriorization processes and getting people out of their heads as a spirit. Hubbard started drawing on astral projection work and on spiritualism, and again Crowley's work, uh, getting into spirituality, and Mad that's where Madame Blavatsky comes in, and the whole concept of a framework or a ladder you can climb. And that there's like an ascendant masters kind of concept where you ascend in the ranks and become higher and more aware and more powerful. In other words, the bridge to total freedom is actually based on earlier concepts of that ladder or progression to higher states of awareness or ability. So, um, so almost the so basically what I'm saying is almost the entire structural framework of what Dianetics and Scientology is based on was taken from other sources and just kind of amalgamated together, right? We take this and then we're going to shove this in and then we're going to put this on top. And Hubbard was trying things a mile a minute all through the 1950s. He went from exteriorization as the solution to clearing as the solution to different forms of clearing. There was there were clears, then there were theta clears, then there were messed clears, then there were cleared theta clears. I mean, there were lots and lots of changes in this moving picture of, of Dianetics and Scientology's evolution, where lots of ideas were just being thrown at the wall, and Hubbard was seeing what would stick. And, uh, and whatever stuck, he kind of ran with that and kept it. And if it didn't stick, it went the way of the dodo, you know? And there was, there was lots of principles in Scientology that went that way uh, over the years, things that were super important when Hubbard first proposed them or talked about them, and then they just kind of vanished. So um, anyway, I, I'm trying to give you a sort of a bigger sense of my take on this whole thing rather than get into a point by point. Well, he took this from here, and he took this from here, and he took this from here. I, you know, I don't have it all figured out to that degree, but I've seen specific instances of things that I've mentioned in this answer, and I hope that that and my reference to ATAC's work on this will suffice for you, Steve, uh, as an answer. So there you go. Dr. Eugene, always enjoy the critical clips segments and learning about your firsthand experience with the church. One observation I find interesting is your astute recognition of how complicated LRH was as a real person. For example, he was a prolific writer, etc., but also a con man, charlatan, and megalomaniac. You recognize the impact, for better or worse, that he had on others. My question, if LRH came back in the flesh and you had five minutes to spend with him, 
How would you spend it? If there was no possibility of repercussions, what would you say to him? Would you compliment him on his ability to create a religion out of nothing, ask him about OT9 and above, criticize him for all the abuses, etc., something in between? Is there anything he could say to you that would make you return to the cult? No more disconnection, no more regging, no more COB? Oh my goodness. You're asking me if I had five minutes alone in a room with L. Ron Hubbard, what would I do? And I have to be first, I have to get out of the way, my first impulse and thought on this, and this might surprise some of you, but I think it would take an extreme force of will on my part to not basically punch the shit out of him, uh, to be completely honest with you, right? I mean, the idea of talking to him is actually secondary to me. <laughs> uh, you know, Hubbard is not somebody that I have a lot of curiosity about, and he's not somebody that I really want to talk to. Um, I don't find him intriguing in that sense. I don't think that, you know, five minutes of time with him would result in anything productive, useful, or helpful to me. Um, even if he were to profusely apologize and tell me how sincere he was and how he never meant for it to and how blah, 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 and how it went out of his control and blah, 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 even that would just sound like nothing but, you know, lame nonsense to me. Because, of course, you know, it would be lame nonsense. Hubbard knew exactly what he was doing, and, and to try to, you know, paint a different picture than that would be uh, rather silly and foolish. But I think that, you know, given his pathological nature as a liar and con artist, I don't think that there's anything he could say to me that I would ever trust or believe. There's nothing I could ever take him at face value on, no matter what he said. So, um, you know, and if he were to fully admit over to the con and, you know, this is what I was thinking, this is what I did, here's how I did it. I mean, if he could break all that down in five minutes, I'd certainly be interested in hearing truth. You know, if it was going to, if there was some way of assuring that I might be a more willing participant and wouldn't be so quick to punch him in the nose, I, I might be interested in an honest rendition from his point of view of what he did and why, you know, I just gave mine. My supposition is, you know, the best I've got uh, based on the years of, of, of work I've done on this. So, you know, I might be willing to hear that, but there isn't, a, there isn't a damn thing Hubbard would ever be able to say to me that would convince me that Scientology is real or that I'm going to, you know, go back to that belief set. I've already pointed out all the reasons why, even just here in this show today, going over the axioms in an earlier answer here as to how nonsensical and ridiculous the whole thing is. So I, I, I can't subscribe to a belief set that I, that, I, that I have an open ridicule for, you know, and contempt for. So, uh, and which I firmly believe and have established for myself uh, 100% is nothing but a coercive control framework. I mean, let's keep this in mind as well. This wasn't just, this wasn't just not good. It's actively bad. And it's actively bad for you. You know, that's, that's the truth of Scientology is this, is this is damaging to people. This hurts them. So, uh, you know, so the idea I'm going to go back to that for some reason, uh, I, I can't imagine uh, how that, what words could possibly be used that would ever accomplish that goal. So, um, so that's, I don't know, that's my answer on that. And uh, you let me know how that, how that works for you. <laughs> All right, folks. So those are my answers this week. We're actually doing a little bit shorter number of questions than usual, just because we've I've taken longer to actually dig into some of these answers. You let me know if if these longer kind of answers are better for you guys. Usually, it's been the case over the years that you know one or two answers I'll give during the show get you know some real some real detailed treatment, and the other ones tend to get uh, shorter shrift. And this time I tried to go kind of all in on each of these. So you let me know uh, what you thought of that. All right, guys, I will see you next week in a new studio space. What it will look like, I have yet to figure out, but I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.